Hey, so y'all all know me, podcast listeners. Uh, my name's Josh. Serve as the lead pastor here at Refuge, and um, yeah, right now we're gonna do, we're gonna head into our time in the Word, which just means we're gonna go to the Bible, and we are going to open it and we're gonna read it. We're gonna explore a little bit of what it says, and from there we're gonna ask the Lord to meet us in that. What does that mean? It means that we're gonna gonna ask Him to speak to us through these words. A ton of people have read the words we're gonna read today. Like literally for 2,000 years, people have been reading this book a really long time. And yet we think it's powerful that God speaks through it to the point that we would get in this room today, open this book that's been around for thousands of years, and read it and be like, I think God's going to speak to me through this. That's pretty powerful. And so that's what we're going to do today. That's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. I'm going to start a timer because last week I got y'all out of here in a decent amount of time and it felt good. And so I'm gonna do it again. I'm gonna do it again. This is my new normal. Now, let's be honest. I set a timer for 20 minutes. Is that gonna happen? No, so don't think it is. But I'm gonna try, okay? So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna start a new sermon series. And that's just like a topic of discussion for the next several weeks. And we will be here for several weeks. Let me be honest with you. We're gonna be discussing these ideas for the next several weeks. And this, I, this, this sermon series, a group of topics, is kind of like labeled flashback. And what that means is we're just going to take a look back and remember what Jesus does on the cross. Last week, uh, what was last week? Does anybody remember? It was Easter. Look at all you Christians. Uh, it was Easter Sunday. And so we come in here and we celebrate the resurrection. And then during like that whole season of Lent, it was like four weeks, 40 days, I should say, before that, we're thinking about like, all the conditions of the world that necessitate or, or lead us to need the work of Jesus and dying on the cross. And so we're thinking about all of what Jesus has done. And on, on a week like last week where we go through Easter, it's so encouraging. We talk about the resurrection. We're super encouraged. Uh, and yet as we walk from that moment, the, the, there's a real question that can arise in us, which is like, well, what does this mean for me tomorrow and next week and the week after that and next year? And the year after that, 10 years from now, what does it mean when I'm taking my final breaths? What does it mean when I raise my family? What does it mean when I go to work? And what this really is aimed at is we're going to walk through Romans 12 and 13 for the next several weeks. So just two chapters in the book of Romans. And we're going to kind of just evaluate what they mean for us. How, how these two chapters written by a man named the Apostle Paul really tease out what this work on the cross means for us. Today we're going to start with uh, the first two verses. So nothing crazy, just the first two verses. Like I said, we're going to be here a while, so don't think like, you know, we're going to take big chunks at a time. Most of the time we're not. We're going to, next several weeks, we're going to spend just like one or two verses, two or three verses, three or four verses. And the big question that I, it's not going to be on the screen, so if you're listening to me, I want you to listen intently. Or if you're writing notes down, this is what you should write down. Uh, we want to answer a simple question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? We have this incredible story last week that God seeing the brokenness of the world, seeing a world that is run and governed by sin and death, these two words that are heavy, he responds to that by entering into the story of people, taking on human likeness, and from there, right, inviting death and inviting sin to exhaust their powers on himself and overcoming them in the resurrection. And when we have Easter morning, it, last week we talked about it, it feels like a whole new world has opened up to us. What does that mean on Monday, though? 
What does it look like to actually follow that? I think that's what we're trying to get at. That's what we're going to spend time thinking about today. What, is it, what does it mean? What does it look like to follow Jesus? In light of all this good news that we, we say we have. For Paul, in the beginning of uh, Romans chapter 11, he uses a very specific <coughs> word, and that's the word sacrifice. We'll read it in one second. But this is a challenging idea. Before we even go into that, it's a challenging idea, primarily because we don't live in the same world. We'll, we'll get to it in one second. You can take this off. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to speak for one second just about uh, why this, this word may be a little bit of a challenge and why this concept may be a bit of a challenge. When I ask you, what does it mean, what does it look like to follow Jesus, what would you say? I'm not asking a rhetorical question. I'm a, I'm a big... I'm a big interaction guy, so what does it mean to you? What, is it, what, is it, what would that look like? This will definitely be the first question in your small group time. So <laughs> what does it look like for you? Loving others? Great. Perfect. Anybody else? What does it look like? What does it mean? Say it again. Take up your cross and follow him. Okay. Sacrifice. That's a good one. From Lee. Okay. <laughs> Anybody else? Let's do one more. Anybody? Throw it out there. I'll say it one more time. Follow his commandments. This is all great. This is really helpful because one of the things that's a little bit unique and a little bit challenging here, friends, is that when we think about following Jesus, <clears throat> following Jesus for us means something very different than it probably did uh, for them. Not that it, the application is different, but how we process it is different. In the time of Paul and even Jesus, they lived in a world where there wasn't this divide between like, like uh, politics and religion or daily life and religion. They lived in a world where, as opposed to we kind of don't really want too many overt spiritual things in places like schools or government uh, bodies or, or government meetings. Right? He lived in a day where cities had like official deities that governed their whole city. Like the city would be built around, the economy of the city would be built around a deity that was like their deity. And every school meeting, every government meeting, every collection of senators all revolved around first being like, hold on, we need to pray to our deity. And maybe that was some type of Roman God, a Greek God, whatever the case is. That's the way they lived their lives. And so when we invited people as Christians into the idea of follow Jesus, for Paul and his people in his day, the idea of what to do with your life wasn't that big of a stretch. Now, the story of who Jesus was and what he does, that was a big stretch. But oftentimes the ideas of how to be religious or how to practice a faith, that wasn't very far from their imagination. Yet for us, it's a really challenging idea. Because if you're being honest and I'm being honest, we come here and on Sunday mornings in this school, we together understand this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. But then the moment Sunday afternoon stops, and maybe after we go out to eat or we spend time with people and tonight we'll watch TV, but then tomorrow we get up early and we go to work, we're feeling groggy and we get into our office and we have that email and the email is super annoying. And all of a sudden we're like, ah, that's when it actually has something to do with following Jesus too, but we don't connect those dots all the time. And so for Paul, he's trying to help the people uh, in Rome understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. And as he does that, I think it has something for us. Now, again, going back to Romans 12.1, he introduces it like this, right? Let's read this uh, together. You don't got to read it out loud, but if you want to, you're welcome. Uh, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true 
worship, okay? Now, sacrifices in the Old Testament. Let's just start here. The idea of sacrifice, when I present it to you, is extraordinarily different than the word that they read, right? I look at you and I say sacrifice, and automatically, what do you think? Give up soda. Okay, that's very specific, but all right. Um, yeah, so give up soda, right? Sacrificing for something, sacrificing for someone. When I say it, I think about the fact that I feel like I'm outside 27 hours a day right now uh, because my son seems to really enjoy it outside. And he's had some behavioral problems. And so while I'm not an outdoorsy person, uh, you're not going to catch me being like, I just want to go sit in the sun. All right, I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm like, I'm brown enough. I'm, like, I'm just going to stop here. Um, while that may be the case there, right, I, I know, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put aside my desires to serve my son. I'm going to sacrifice for him, and I'm going to go and serve him, right, and we'll be outside together. For Paul's uh, congregation, right, for who he's writing to, that idea is not what he's thinking of necessarily. It's connected, but the initial vision that they would have is one that really comes from religious practice in their day. And what that looked like was, was really like a vegetable, a fruit a crop, an animal that was brought to an altar and killed for the sake of appeasing or for the sake of honoring a god. It didn't matter if it was a Hebrew god, didn't matter if it was a Roman god, a Greek god. Over here on this side of the world, we were sacrificing things as well to gods. My ancestors were sacrificing a little more than crops and vegetables and animals, I'll say. We, we had a little different practice on this side of the world. Uh, praise, praise God that, you know, come a long way since then. However, um, <clears throat> that's the vision they would have had. And it was the idea that this vegetable, this crop, is serving God in its death, right? It, it's, it's, a, it's pleasing God in its death. And so he says, hey, this item that was dedicated to God, a sacrifice, that's what I want you to be. I want you to be dedicated to God. However, he uses this really unique and cool word before that. He says, I want you to present your body. And this word body is like present all of you as a living sacrifice. And right away, for people that were reading this letter, they would have been like, what is this dude talking about? Because by its very nature, the idea of a sacrifice is not a lie. Its service is the service of dying in some way, of being consumed in some way, of its blood being shed in some way. And yet Paul here is saying, hey, I want you, when you think about what it means to follow Jesus, to see yourself as a living sacrifice. What does this word living mean? I, I think, why does it, why does it, what does it communicate in this context? I think what he's trying to do is to get us to see that while, while a sacrifice in the traditional sense was meant to serve God through its death, we are meant to serve God through our life. That our death does not necessarily serve God, though it may, but our life is meant to serve God. While the, the vision of a sacrifice right, is to be dedicated to God, to serve God in death. Our vision for what our life should look like is to be dedicated to God in life, in every decision, in, in every, every point of life. Now, from here, he goes on to this really powerful thing. Um, in the second part of Romans 12.1, uh, he says, holy and pleasing to God, uh, this is your true worship. Everybody say true worship. All right, that's a little tricky too. To be quite honest, the Bible is a pretty tricky book, to be honest. It's a, it's a little tricky. If you're, not, if you're not navigating it well, you could end up coming away being like, yeah, being a living sacrifice is a correct way to worship. And then we go and say, well, I guess 
uh, we just dedicate our lives to God and, and we try as hard as we can. And maybe because we saw the sacrificial system in the other way, in the Old Testament or in the old ways of being connected to a service, right? Something like a, like a ceremony. We may take that and do something like, well, that must mean that serving God comes, means coming to a ceremonial event, uh, giving of ourselves, dedicating ourselves to God there. And then from there, that's what it means to, to serve God. Yet, when Paul started to throw out this idea of like a, a living sacrifice, your life is dedicated to this God. And then he buckles down and goes, that's true worship. He's building a very different vision in that, a very different vision of what a, a sacrifice was in the Old Testament in general or in any other religion. You see, this word true is not a literal word for true. Uh, the root word of it, and I'm going to butcher this. And so, uh, no, 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 I need you. Don't cover your mouth. Logicon? Lokekos. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's why, that's why you have people in your church that pronounce Greek, friends. Okay, anyway. Um, right, it's where, it's a, it's a root of where we get the word logic. It's also a root of the word logos, which is what's used to describe Jesus. And, and while we may approach that in a certain way, in Paul's day, it had a rich history in the philosophy of Greek and Roman thinkers. And it was more than just this idea of being reasonable. In some of the translations you'll see, they'll say, hey, uh, present your body as living sacrifice. This is a reasonable worship. This is a, a good style, a good thing to do. But when we explore the rich history of what this word would have meant in Paul's day, it was so much more than that. It built this vision where honestly, like, it, it, it's like your nature or your instinct to be worshipful. It was more than just this idea of being reasonable or thinking through, but the philosophers of Paul's day and of the classical Greek and Roman period had this vision of this idea where, where it almost became an innate response. Like it was, it was what was inside of you, working inside of you, interacting and shaping you. And, and for them, maybe reason was a part of that. But for Paul, he's saying giving your body as an act of worship is, is really like, like recreating your life to where everything inside you is working toward giving yourself and obeying God. That's what your life looks like now. That every instinct, every, every natural thought, every response, every choice, every moment of your life, every high point, every low point, every side point, everything that you do and everywhere that you are and everywhere that you go, all of it is going to be wrapped up in giving your life as a sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, dedicating yourself to God. This is, this is really powerful because what it means is that the vision that God has for your life is not one that you go out into life with a, with a notebook and a set of rules, but that you go out into the world encountering a bunch of different situations, a bunch of different choices, a bunch of different challenges, and the Spirit of God at work inside of you is creating a new creature, a new nature, is, is building something inside of you that as you navigate through life, through the challenges, everything else that comes with life, good moments, you're by instinct, by nature, starting to navigate in a way that says, I want to glorify, honor, right, like lift up, enjoy, love, be loved by God. That's every part of my life now. And that, that's really what's happening here. If there was a point to be made regarding what living sacrifice means, it means that your whole, your whole entity is dedicated to God now. Your whole entity, your whole being, and every moment of your life is now dedicated to God. The best thing that I can do to compare anything in my life to this that, that's not revolving around the person of God is probably fatherhood, to be quite honest with you. 
No one probably could have said, hey, this is what fatherhood's going to be like. Absolutely nobody. Just not something you could be prepared for. When my daughter was born, our, first, our firstborn, she was born, and it felt like from one second to the next. And I'm not, I don't even mean all of pregnancy. The whole pregnancy, she was just a lump in my wife's stomach, right? That's all, that's all I identified her as. She had a cute little face on the little scans, and it was like, that's nice. But, but it wasn't until I saw her and held her that my whole life felt like it changed. From that moment on, it felt like my life, in, in, in some way, at least in part, was dedicated to my daughter. I used to want to ride around one of those, I think they're called Indian motorcycles, right? It's the, it's the Benjamin Button motorcycle, if y'all know what that's about. Um, and they're so cool. They're so cool. I was like, you know what? I'm going to awkwardly wear skinny jeans and boots and ride around on one of these motorcycles. I'm going to be like Benjamin Button. I'm going to get younger with age. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I was like, I'm never going to ride a motorcycle in my life. Why? Because why would I put myself in that kind of danger? My daughter needs me. Just like that. Something that I've been dreaming of since Benjamin Button came out. I was like 16 when Benjamin Button came out. That's a long time ago. I was 20... How old was I, 27? When my daughter was born. That's like almost 10 years of dreaming about this motorcycle, y'all. That's a lot of dreaming, a lot of hoping. And in, in one instance, it was like, I don't need that. I don't want that. Why? Because I'm dedicated to this now. I'm not dedicated to myself anymore. Everything in my life, every choice, every hope, every goal, every desire, is now somehow starting to get linked to this little girl, right? It's just my nature, my inclination where I used to see a yellow light and be like, bro, go faster. I see a yellow light and I'm like, bro, slow down. <laughs> All these random but practical changes seem to instantaneously take effect. And that's the vision that Paul has. In my life, when I engage the gospel, when I'm transformed, I turn, I see the gift of Jesus, I respond by giving my, my whole being, my whole body, my mind, my heart, my, my physical actions, everything. I give it to him in a way that's dedicated to him in every moment, in every, every point of my life. And, and it shapes me. I'm shaped. I'm, I'm learning. I'm giving myself to him. I'm making mistakes. If I make a mistake, I come back and say, hey, I'm sorry. In the same way with my daughter, if I make a mistake, I come back and I'm like, hey, I'm sorry. I'm trying, but all I want to do is love you well. Uh, right? That's the vision that Paul seems to have for this idea of giving ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, the thing is, a lot of us, we're probably like, how, how the heck do you do that, right? Because uh, that sounds really challenging. Uh, I'm going to put this in my back pocket. Uh, it is a child's toy that I happen to have sitting there for the past 15 minutes. And uh, it's really getting to me as I keep putting my hand in my pocket. How do we do that? Well, that's, that's really what the next chunk of, of, of text, what, what Paul's getting at, right? In verse 2, he continues on from here. <coughs> do not be conform to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect. What is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God? And this is an important, important phrase, renewing your mind. Everyone say renewing your mind. Renewing your mind, okay? How does that happen? Well, if I'm going to be 100% honest with you, I don't have the complete answer. I'm not completely sure. I think there's a spiritual element to that that we don't have as much control over. However, there does seem to be a few things that Paul invites us in to think about from this text. Uh, and I think they're, they're most specifically rooted in this idea, the present age. The present age. So, so Paul, in this verse, says, hey, don't, 
Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And for Paul's Hebrew and, and really Jewish counterparts during this time, they would have read this and had a very specific vision for what it meant. We've talked about this actually a lot over the past few weeks. And it's the idea that the present age is the one ruled and governed by sin and death. Ruled and governed, that, that the present age for all people is the one where sin and death reign because people have made the decision to take it on themselves to play the role of God. That we choose what's right, we choose what's wrong, and therefore sin and death has crept into the world and corrupted it and, and really made it the difficult place to live that it sometimes is. Right? Every single one of your painful experiences, every single one of your, 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 your times of mourning, every tear you've cried, every anxiety you felt is rooted and found in the idea that we live in the present age where sin and death reign. Now, the thing is, in contrast, they also thought of a different age, the age to come, an age where God would enter into that story and make things right set everything beautiful and good again. And for Paul and for the early Christians, they saw the great change from the present age to the age to come, not as something they were looking forward to, but to something that had already happened in the person of Jesus. And so when Jesus dies on the cross and he resurrects, he brings in the age to come. He's already declaring, I'm risen, I've overcome sin and death, I've, I, I've conquered it, and the project to make everything new is now beginning, and it has a secure end because of the victory of Jesus. And so when Paul says, hey, don't be conformed to this age, he's saying that there was a, a time where you walk in the ways where you let the, uh, your own judgments dictate what was right and wrong. Don't be conformed to that, right? There's actually a, the coming age, the age of Jesus, of redemption and new beauty and all these things, right, that, that's coming. Be conformed to that. Seek that. Now, this is challenging because what it means is that Christians who are a new creation, that they can absolutely be tempted by the present age. That we can, despite the fact that we follow Jesus, that we love Jesus, that we can still be conformed into the present age, the age that's ruled and governed by sin and death, that is ruled and governed by the attitude that we can make our decisions, our own decisions, about what's right and what's wrong. Now, here's the thing. I think this happens in one of two ways. And I think that it's really powerful for us to just think through it and consider it together a little bit. The first one, the first way I think this happens is really through a lot of pride, right? What does that mean? It means that we walk around going, I think I got this figured out. I have life figured out. I've made my own choices. I know what's right and what's wrong. I know the best things for me. I know everything that I got to do. And so it comes with a lot of pride. And, and it really, that oftentimes impacts people around us by going, I'm a little bit smarter than you. I'm wiser than you. If you need something, let me know. But if you want to correct me in any way, I don't have room to hear that because I got everything figured out. And here's the concerning part that doesn't just happen to non-Christians. Actually, it happens to Christians a lot because there's a ton of people in the Christian fear. Some of us in here would be included in that. They would look and go, my prayer life is wildly great, right? I know the scriptures like the back of my hand, right? I, I go to church. I haven't missed a Sunday of church since I was 11 years old. Right, like we have all these things that we decide, hey, I'm gonna create this list of ways that I am displaying and showing I have everything figured out. And then from there, we look at anyone that doesn't have those same criteria, that doesn't have that same resume, and we go, you're like a second tier Christian compared to me. And if that was done any other place in the world, right, we would look and be like, man, that's sinful. If there was 
any, we look at caste systems and, and class systems and all the things that we see used to oppress people and keep them where they are in the world and go, that's not cool. And yet when we go to church at times, not just the people around us, but we ourselves can build a sense of importance and a sense of, of pride on the fact that we do these things and they don't. And so I'm qualified to help someone and they aren't. And I'm not in the, in the position to be corrected, but I can offer a lot of correction. And that creates a lot of the same pain that happens outside of church, just happens in here now. Now on the other end, the second one is actually not through confidence, but I think um, through a little bit of humility and, and maybe more than humility, a little bit of insecurity. And so rather than saying, hey, I have it all figured out, we say I can't figure out anything. I don't have anything figured out. And so rather than running to God, we go, I'm going to go search for anyone to tell me what I should think. You tell me what I should think. Because I don't have the capacity to make a choice that's healthy and good. Therefore, I want you to tell me what to think. And so now in our world, we turn to influencers and celebrities and, and, and cultural movements and philosophies. And we turn to self-help. And we turn to, and I don't got nothing wrong. I'm not hating on Marie Kondo. You know, and during, she had a good run. All right, I'm just saying. I was with you and I was like, oh, you know what? It doesn't spark joy, <laughs> right? Like I was with you in that moment, but like we turned to Marie Kondo and, and you know, and then on two separate ends of a spectrum, we turned to like, hey, you do you and everyone can do what they want. And then we turned to like red pill incel stuff. And so there's a ton of, there's a ton of spectrum here. It doesn't, it's not, it's not exclusively on the left politically or on the right politically. It's all together, this movement that says, I can't tell what I need to choose. And so I'm gonna go have you tell me what to think. And at the end of the day, both of them create a huge and unbearable burden on you and on me. Because while one is walking around going, I have it all together, deep down there's a fear that if I fail, if I stumble, everyone will look at me and say, no, they don't. They're nothing but a failure. And the other one walks around going, I pray that no one looks at me and realizes I'm doing the wrong thing because I'm trying so hard to walk in line with what they say I should be. And the moment we step out of that, we go, man, I'm a failure. And while they look to be on two so, on such different ends of the spectrum, one feels like a, a leader or, or some type of, maybe a tyrant, but uh, some type of leader and, and confident, and one seems like a follower and really insecure, they're actually both wrestling with the exact same thing. Just a fear of what if I stumble here? What if I fail? What if I don't meet the standards set by someone else or set by me? And friend, that's a horrible way to live. That is a horrible way to live. I, I'm gonna move on for the sake of time, but parting words and just this subject. Man, if you're living like that, you can feel yourself wrapped up in that anxiety. Maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your family, maybe it's culture, maybe it's a coworker, whatever it is, maybe it's yourself, and there's a better way. There's a better way, because that way sucks. It sucks, and it riddles you with anxiety and frustration, sometimes like some self-hatred. It sucks. You know, but God. And so I think that, that that's the, the vision God has. He's saying, hey, rather than, than conforming to this world and, and taking on and submitting yourself to that attitude, whether it's in the 
insecure, passive way or the active, very proud way. Um, rather, leave all that behind and submit yourself to God. Learn what he desires. Learn how he feels about you. Walk in that sense of, of love and compassion and mercy, right? Wrap yourself in the life that he's accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. Find yourself there. Walk that out. Renew your mind, understand what he wants in certain situations, what he desires from us in certain situations, and let that start becoming a habit for you, right? right. Resist temptation, resist that, that temptation, not just on, on a practical side, but even in a mental way, and try to rework your thoughts. Just keep giving yourself to that, to that effort. Just keep going. It's not, a, it's not a one-time thing. It's an everyday, lifelong thing, but just keep doing that every day, every hour. And here's the thing. For a lot of us, we look at what I'm saying right now, and it's like, man, uh, I, I, I'm not good at that. I've been a Christian for a long time, and I'm, I'm really not good at that. And I feel you. I feel you. I, too, even just reading this and working through it was kind of like, man, I'm not good at this. Um, I feel like I try to do this, and I just seem to not, just seem to get things wrong. Or I try, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I still feel like I'm struggling with certain things. I think the answer to that, not the solution to it, Right, not the solution, not to say, okay, here's an easy fix that's gonna get you over the hump, but rather the answer to that frustration is found in the very first word uh, of this specific verse. Romans 12, verse one, going back to it, says, therefore, therefore. What does therefore mean? It means there was something before it. it. Means that he's saying, okay, because we talked about this, now we're gonna talk about this. And the therefore is actually connected to the last word of the verse that we said, a verse that we're talking about. Renew your mind. Right, so you can understand the good and pleasing will of God. In, in Romans 1, uh, there's actually some language that's shockingly similar to this. In verse 20, um, Paul writes, For his invisible, that's God, characteristics or attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen uh, since the beginning, uh, the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, People are without excuse. That is to not see God as God, not to see the character of God. Uh, for, though, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking uh, became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools uh, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed creatures or animals and reptiles. And so at the beginning of Romans, there's an invitation to see what the cause of all this is. That as human beings, the whole theme theologically is that because you've exchanged the vision of God being God, right, our thoughts have now been right, made worthless, this type of, type of aggressive language here in English translations, that, that it's been made futile, it's not, it's not functioning correctly. And that is associated with a, a darkened heart. And so for Paul, he looks at humanity and goes, man, we're out here missing it. We're missing it. We're putting these burdens on ourselves. We follow other people. We follow ourselves. We put ourselves in these vulnerable positions where we're scared. Where we feel the value of us as people dwindle little by little. We make tears and try to move as far up the tears we can because that's the only way we can somehow figure out to grasp meaning and worth and value in a world that tells us Man, you are not on the right path. You're making bad choices. But, but we build our own little structures and go, well, well this is how I'm going to define my, my life. And he says all that's related to the fact that you've removed God as God. And because of that, that's what the thinking does. 
And that's also related to the fact that our heart is darkened, is hardened. And that's why the therefore is so important. Because if this was an invitation to just think about what it meant to dedicate yourself to God, uh, this would be actually a really difficult verse to read. Because it would look at you and say, dedicate yourself. Okay, let me try that. Every thought, I'm going to take it captive, friend. You start using biblical language and being super, super Christian. Like, hey, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to watch that, man. I'm renewing my mind. <laughs> you, would just, you would fight that battle day in and day out. And every time you failed, the same burden would play out. Because you would go, okay, now here is a bunch of rules that I need to, to live out. And every time we fail at one, we go right back to the low point that we were at when we were following our own methods and someone else's methods. But now we just have God's methods. And now we still find ourselves at the low point, feeling worthless, feeling like a failure. But this isn't the start of the book. It's actually rather near the end of the book. And the therefore there is really important because for like seven to eight chapters now, Paul's basically been like, Jesus has overcome. 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 He just kind of has it on repeat for a while. And he, he weaves his way through a lot of really challenging moments, but there's a lot of really powerful left punches that just say, God has overcome through the death and the resurrection of this Jesus. And so when he finally gets to Romans 12, the basis by which we now say, hey, go and um, dedicate yourself to God. Try to renew every part of your mind. Give yourself to the Lord. is not built on go try really hard, but built on find your life in this, the obedience of this Jesus. Right? There's this powerful thing where when you fail now, the vision of your eyes and of your heart is no longer meant to go to you, but the vision of your eyes and heart are meant to go to the man on this cross. The vision of your eyes and the vision of your heart are meant to go to this Christ resurrected. That's the response now to every moment of failure. So we're not given a task list that's meant to tell us who we are. And that's what we hear every time someone tells us to do something. We hear, do this, and whether you succeed or you fail, I'll let you know who you are. But now we're given a task list and say, hey, renew your mind. Go and serve the Lord. Dedicate yourself to him. But here's who you are. You're working from who you are, not to who you are. And so every time you fail, your response shouldn't be, this tells me who I am. But every time you fail, the response becomes, this God has told me who I am. My life is wrapped up in him. My failures are his successes. He's redeemed me. He's restored me. My successes are displays of his kindness and of his grace. My life is wrapped up in him because through him no longer am I dead and enslaved to sin and death. But through him now, I am alive and holy and set apart because of the grace of God through the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And so now I dedicate myself to him in, in an invitation of mercy and grace and acceptance and love. And every stumbling block, I just look back and go, the man on the cross, the resurrected Christ. And then I keep going. That's the invitation here, friend. The invitation is, and here's a task list to help you define who you are. The invitation is, hey, we need to work out who you are through the person and work of Jesus. And once you find out who you are, this is who, what who you are does. 
This is who you've been made through the work of Jesus, and, and here's how you're going to live that out. Last story, and then we're going we're gonna to call it a day. Um, I, I naturally, I think instinctively, am like a disciplinarian. It's kind of like a little bit more of my personality type. Uh, I'm very aggressive, and I kind of like having control. I'm sure none of you relate to that whatsoever. <laughs> and so uh, for the first several years, you know, a couple of years of my son's life, I've been very anxious about disciplining him, getting him to behave, to conform to my ideas of who I want him to be. And from there, kind of being like, all right, when he's behaving like that, I very much so feel like I'm in control. I very much so feel like I'm doing a good job as a father. When he is doing what I think is good, then I'm a good dad. Uh, and it's like, the past like year and a half has robbed me of those thoughts in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, it, it's funny because I think what ends up happening there is what I oftentimes did mentally and emotionally is I looked at my son and I said, you're my son. And to feel like my son, you need to do these things. To believe you're my son, to feel the value, the worth, the love of being my son, you need to do what I say. And that has had uh, varying degrees of success. Uh, more on the negative side than the positive side. There have been moments where I'm like, oh, he's being obedient. But then he's also just not being himself. And oftentimes it felt really bad. And the times I thought I'd feel like a great dad because he was finally behaving were the times that I felt like a horrible dad. Because I felt like I robbed him of who he was. In the past uh, several weeks, couple of months, I tried to turn a bit of a corner and look and say, that's my son. He loves being outside. I hate being outside. <laughs> he, he actually has like some, he really likes sensory stuff. Like he needs a lot of input. And then I ended up realizing, like, oh, no, I need a lot of input too. Like I'm actually a lot like him that way. Um, and I decided to just look at him and say, you're mine. I love you. Hey, man, uh, because I love you, because you're mine, I want what's best for you. I think being respectful would be really good for you. Can we work on being respectful together? I'll be respectful to you. You'll be respectful to me. I don't know long-term the effects of that. Just, it's been like eight weeks. But I know if I was him, I would really want for someone to look at me and be like, you're mine. And that can't change because that's who you are. You'll never do something that makes you not who you are. You'll always be Guerrero. Even if you change your name, you look just like me. Like, it, there's no escaping it. You're mine. And so I want to invite you to follow me. I want to work with you. Let's grow together. When I read this verse, I think that's a vision I get more than I have at any other point in my life. Because God has accomplished what he's accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus, he now is able to look at you and say, you're mine. That doesn't change. Your actions can't change that. Doesn't matter. I mean, I don't know, I'll avoid the, the nerdy biblical reference to John chapter 1, but the nerds get it. Um, 
And from there is an invitation to say, now let's work together and grow it. Renew your mind. Focus on me. When you fail, come back to me. We'll make it okay. We'll get back out there. Let's work together. And that's the rest of our lives on this side of eternity. That is the rest of your life. It is a love affair with a compassionate and loving father who's inviting you into a beautiful, wonderful life that was rooted in what he's done to make you his. And that's what you do now. But just do it. It's, it's not... It, it, free your heart of that feeling that you need to define yourself. Repent of that. Turn away from it. Turn to God. He loves you. He cares for you. He sees you. His only aim is to help you grow, to help you renew your mind, because he's already done what's needed to make you his. That's not what you're fighting for today. So let's stop fighting the wrong battles. Let's just follow our loving Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Uh, thank you for your words that uh, encourage us, that challenge us. Um, I think I've heard it said that function like a mirror, that show us where we struggle, that show us where we have shortfalls. Um, and yet, I've also heard it said that they should function more like a window, that in seeing ourselves in the reflection of your word, it is also a mirror that therefore gives us a vision of who you are as a merciful, loving, compassionate God. And so, Father, let us have a mirror in front of us for a moment. Let us have a moment where we see deficiencies in our lives, our hearts, our choices. But likewise, Father, let that mirror give way to a window that gives us a beautiful vision of the compassion and love that you have for us. And from there, let us fall in love with you. Let us love you more every day. Obey you more every day. Follow your ways every day. And when we fail at that after really good streaks, where we think we have it together, and then life and our own insufficiencies make it very clear that we do not. Let us return to you and the compassionate, loving Father that you are. Let us return to identifying with the work of Jesus. To your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.